0: Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global rate specialists, Giles Gale, John Briggs and Theo Chapsalis. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. All right, welcome back Bondcasters. Um, We've had quite a busy week I would say we've I think central bank or dovish central bank speak has probably dominated market moves uh, particularly in Europe but I guess that dovish message in some places has been a little bit more nuanced you know since we last caught up we've had the Fed minutes where they kind of introduced the idea that they might be thinking about or starting to think about talking about tapering, um, John. You can tell us a bit more about that. We had Clarida who introduced this idea around the need for uh, risk management around inflation expectations, uh, and we also had the RBNZ overnight. Um, at, well, we're recording this on Wednesday, so overnight yesterday, um, where they were slightly more hawkish than uh, market consensus although not that West Markets consensus. <laughs> um, so let's start with you, Jas, since Europe, I think, is where we've had the most kind of um, streamlined, dovish message, I would say. Um, it feels like the governing council members are setting us up for no kind of step down in purchases in the near future. Um, would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I would. I think that it's pretty clear that um, they are uh trying to push back a little bit against you know what expectations remain for, for for a step down so you know I think that now compared you know two three weeks ago we were you know fairly convinced that you know the macro side of things would do would, would have justified them you know backing away you know perhaps going back to something like the the q1 pace of asset purchases and now you know we don't think that that's likely
0: so you, well, you kind of said that we were expecting that justified by the data, they would be able to to kind of relax this significantly higher purchase pace. So can not relaxing then really be justified in what the kind of market moves or the data that we've seen, or are they just being really overly cautious at this point?
1: Right. So I think you're, you're right to suggest that the data would justify a step down in asset purchases, probably if... Um, if you're just looking at that, I mean, certainly seems like the, the risks are less skewed to the downside, um, certainly compared to too much. At the same time, financial conditions, uh, you know, we don't know exactly how they weight the various things that they look at. um, But we, we know, roughly speaking, what they do look at. And most, most of the key indicators are pointing to slightly tighter financial conditions. So, you know, put those two th- things together, you know, I suppose it yeah you you can have it both ways if you like i mean I, I i think that um they would be more comfortable with financial conditions maybe just a little bit easier but i but but i suppose that if they're setting things up for the next three months they want to make sure that there's above all not a, a further deterioration um over over the summer really i suppose um you know the next point is that they do have room for for caution. Um, inflation expectations are are still very low in in Europe, and you know while the the resurgence of inflation is certainly you know, something which people want to talk about in the European context, you um, it's it, it's more sort of global theme at this point. And so, as I say, they have a lot of room to to, to remain cautious. You know, perhaps three months of a slightly higher. Um, uh, per, Purchase pace is uh, is, a, is a relatively small price to pay for you know, a little bit of extra insurance there, and. Going into the summer, I mean, summers summers are often volatile periods, and I think that it will be in the back of their mind that they have their strategy review uh, to deliver in September. And the last thing that they would want to to have happen probably would be for that to be dominated by some volatility over the summer rather than the longer term considerations that they really should be prioritizing.
0: So if, if this, that is really what, what the kind of June meeting is about, I suppose, setting up a sort of low volatility environment over the summer, does that mean that we're now probably at peak dovishness? You know, you talked about some reasons of, of why this much dovishness could be justified now, but presumably come the September meeting, it's going to be harder to kind of justify a, a still very high purchase pace.
1: I think that's absolutely right. They, they will have to sooner or later start you know, backing away from, from this level of accommodation um, you know, very, very slowly and in the right conditions and so on. You know, certainly our base case is that the recovery will look even more cemented and the, the risk assessment will be even more favorable um, come late summer. And so, yes, I think you know, your characterization of peak dovishness is probably about right.
0: All right. Well, the good news is we didn't have too long to wait until the June ECB. Um, and I'm sure we'll discuss it on this podcast again before then. Um, so now let's switch over to the Fed and the US because we have, as well, as jarl said, they're a very dovish institution, but we have had kind of slightly more nuanced hawkish tones creeping in, if you like, John, I guess, firstly with the minutes with that sentence around you know, starting to think about <laughs> talking about tapering, um, and then um, the the comments from Clarida as well. So, can you kind of just talk us through both of those and and update us on how they might have slightly changed to a slightly more hawkish uh, rhetoric?
2: Yeah, slightly changed to slightly more hawkish feels about right. I mean, like no, like Giles said, it is a dovish institution. So even within the scale of people that we would say are lean hawkishly in the Fed, they're still doves. Um, but also, you know, it is, these are small, subtle changes. So we don't want to go, you know, too far in in overreacting to them, but, you know, for a Fed that we know is going to move at a glacial pace, I mean, we were, our roadmap is that we start talking about it this summer. They announced it's tapering in September to taper maybe, maybe early as December, but probably more like Q1. I mean, this is a huge nine month process to actually get to where they do the tapering, um, but you know, given the glacial pace at which they're going to be changing and this is going to be evolving, small and subtle shifts are actually worth paying attention to because there isn't going to be a large step change. It's going to be an evolution. So what we saw um, last week, not just in the minutes, but more important to me was with Clarida, was, you know, he brought into this idea of risk management around the inflation side of the conversation. Now, since CPI, you've seen a little bit of a tone change in general, like you said, a little bit less of pure focus on the employment mandate and that it's too early to talk about, talk about um, to more of a, you know, not everybody, but to more of a a more balanced outlook. And even Clarity yesterday said the risks are more balanced. So I think what the point here is that when you talk about risk management in the past, Bernanke and Yellen used that as risk management against a zero bound in a dovish way, meaning we have to be really careful lifting off because if we do it at the wrong time we have no room to cut rates besides that 25 basis points we just hiked so you know the risk management of policy is to stay dovish for longer to make sure that we're lifting off at the right time but this is risk management in the other direction and it was spurred by the higher inflation data and i think what he's trying to get at is to to retain that credibility on the inflation side so work with me here, but so if you're entering a new flexible average inflation targeting, where you're trying to overshoot your, your 2% inflation target for a small period, you know, that could be six, nine months. We're not sure what that is, but not talking years, but you have inflation starting to rise. What you need to do is you need to create that credibility that you're not going to let inflation rise past that point. In other words, you want a little inflation, but not too much. They're trying to clip. What I would say is that fat, right tail of inflation by saying, don't worry, we're still paying attention to the inflation mandate. We're going to let some come out, but we're not going to, you know, let this get out of control because if you get into the place where you have trying to get participants believe that you're going to allow above and target inflation, but they don't believe you have credibility inflating inflation at all, then, you know, markets are going to believe that inflation is going to get out of control. So it's a really fine balancing act right now. So I think what Clarida was trying to do with the higher inflation number, this higher CPI number was say, okay, look, we, if there is higher inflation, we have the tools to combat it. We're going to let that, you know, we are seeking for, you know, this is probably going to be transitory, but even if it's not, you know, we're not going to let it get completely out of control. So I think it was just more of a balanced message rather than the, you know, pure focus on the employment side.
0: So, well, I think from what you've said, I already kind of know the answer to this next question, but I guess this I can split this question into two parts in that a does this shift that this very kind of gradual shift that we've had over the past week or so change your base case expectations for the fed and then the second part of that is if not what happens if we get another kind of big surprise on inflation data next month a big uh, number on nfps as well would that then change your base case again
2: yeah, so um, I'm going to answer both at once, which is right now we haven't changed our base case. I think there's going to be still a lot of volatility in the data. And clearly the Fed is still trying to give this transitory inflation message. If we do have another strong CPI, I think the market might challenge them on that. But the way I like to think about to answer both questions is that this the risks are asymmetric. I mean, right now the market's not priced for much. The market's not priced to move up the tapering timeline. I and mean, yeah, we have some rate hikes moving into – Know, the out years late 22 and into 23 but it's not that much so if you end up getting a strong non-farm payroll and a strong cpi and and note after the last payroll report it seems like consensus is really coming down to what payrolls could be so beating that might not be that hard of course you might have the reverse in cpi because people are afraid of now missing a higher cpi number but the asymmetric risk is that if numbers are still volatile and and you know payrolls are bouncing around you know, it's hard, I think, for yields to fall and markets to rally or to price less. fed, But there's a much greater chance that if you do have a string of series numbers that the market does price more fed. So I don't necessarily think this has changed my view on the timing. But I think it's it's created more asymmetric risk to the upside because they've opened the door to to potentially moving up the discussion around tapering if you do get that stronger data in order to keep that credibility we talked
0: that makes sense. So just moving away from monetary policy quickly um, and onto the fiscal side, because we're still awaiting kind of news on, on the fiscal package. I think by the time this is published, we, we may have a bit more information, but we're, we're not a hundred percent clear on that. So could you just, I guess, update us on your latest thoughts on, on the fiscal side in the U S as well?
2: Yeah. So as of this recording, we're still waiting the Republican counterproposal to Biden's counterproposal that came early in the week. Now, um, in case everybody's not up to speed on the timing timelines here, the Biden administration set a Memorial Day deadline for bipartisan negotiations on infrastructure. The, the point of setting his own self-imposed deadline was that he didn't want bipartisan negotiations, whether it was good faith or bad faith, to drag on to the point where so much time passed that they would lose momentum on on if he had even switched to just using reconciliation and going all Democratic votes. Um, and I think that you know there are parts to both moderate Democrats and biden himself that would prefer to have some sort of bipartisan agreement here after all he campaigned on bringing you know the nation together so um but anyway so thursday which will probably be we you'll be listening to this after will be the republican counterproposal but i really think that um you know it'll probably run towards the weekend i doubt that the the administration is going to just accept that. Now the deadline can be extended if there is a feeling of good faith and they're coming closer. So I don't it's not a hard deadline, it's more a soft deadline. You know, we remain a little skeptical. Um I mean we're I I think it's you know maybe a one in three chance they have a bipartisan negotiation. So it's not non-zero, but I wouldn't say it's you know above 50% um just because of the politics involved. But we should know about that soon. I do think that given that you know, consensus is that this is going to be harder to get bipartisan than not. If we do get an agreement, that probably, again, creates asymmetric risk where people tend to think this is going to take till September. The baseline of the market, at least from people I talk to, is that this fiscal deal is not going to happen until September. So if we have, even if it's a smaller deal, but it happens now. Um, That opens the door for the Democrats to use reconciliation on other spending priorities. So I think that could be, um, you know, a little bit of a fiscal surprise, which again creates an asymmetric risk to higher yields, even though I think this one, you know, may not be likely.
0: I was going to say it sounds like two risks pointing in in favor of our um, higher yield targets than in the US. <laughs> All right, then let's move away from policy completely and, and head over to the UK, Theo, where we had the um, linker syndication this week. And I think I'm right in saying that it was the biggest ever linker syndication in cash terms. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how that went?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So when we take a step back and we think about the previous two years, um, they were featured by very little linker issuance. And we know that the UK market is particularly starved for linker supply. So there was a reason why we didn't get much linker issuance. And uh, that RPI reform did create um, you know, a degree of uncertainty. And because of that, the DMO was hesitant to issue debt. Now, that uncertainty obviously was lifted. Uh, in uh, November 2020, uh, and investors want to buy more linkers. And we've seen indeed, um, as, you've, as, as you've said, a record a record um, uh, size of a syndication in terms of cash terms. So that was the linker 39s. I think it shows many bits. So one is the fact that there is, there is clearly very strong appetite for inflation link paper. I mean, th- this goes without saying, um, given the size two it, it shows that the Dmo they do take into consideration valuations and the shape of the curve so that particular sector is much more beneficial and there is a lot stronger demand in 50 to 20 year linkers than say uh, across 30year linkers so when we looked at RPI forwards for example the difference is around 50 basis points so five zero so clearly you move 10 years shorter and then you get much much higher valuations um, and the other point that i would say is that well uh from a valuation point of view the bond was offered a bit cheap which tells you also that uh well the dmo they wanted to provide a lot of linkers in the market and uh they were generous you know in terms of valuations to uh, offer the bond a bit on the cheaper side
0: so how do we trade this going forward
3: Yeah, I think uh, issuance in that part of the curve is particularly important. So you have a curve which, which looks very strange. So it is inverted. And then at some point around the 30-year sector, we've got a low. Uh, and we've got a low in terms of um, RPI forwards and breakings because there's been too much supply and investors don't want that supply. However, uh, at the 15 to 20-year part of the curve, we have a hump. So when you speak to Lincoln ver- uh, investors about trading the hump, this is really positioning um, at that part of the curve. We want to be short. We want to be short uh, break-evens at that part of the curve. We understand that, you know, front-end inflation globally has been supported and uh, investors are really, uh, you know, uh, I would say, not surprised, but I would say definitely they are uh, thinking twice following the numbers, the very strong inflation numbers that we had from the US and the UK. Uh, but. The longer end has no need to perform because if you think that all that fiscal spending that we get in the US and uh, you know the reopening of the economy, they do bring higher inflation. They will bring higher inflation now. They will not create higher inflation in 15 years' time. And this is, I think, quite an important factor. So we want to be short that part of the curve because we think that more issues will come in a part of the curve that was trading rich for about five years because there was practically very little supply, that part will have to cheapen. So, short 15-year.
0: So, were you surprised yesterday with how well-supported uh, long break-evens were, um, given that they're already at fairly rich valuations?
3: Yeah, I think this, this is actually quite interesting that, uh, you know, you you offer duration to the market, and the, the market just... Um, picks it up. And to me, this is an indication that often demand or actually supply creates additional demand, which is very interesting. So this is a very UK specific theme You offer more supply and then uh, some of the investors just uh, wake up and say, wow, this is an opportunity to buy. And then that creates some some additional demand. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the long end did definitely perform well when you look at valuations in the beta metric, for example. And um, if you take into consideration that all that bond rally uh, did create also uh, a guild rally. And uh, that usually is negative for breakevens, but breakevens have held up very well at the back end of the curve, which to me is a clear evidence that, you know, that additional supply has created additionally higher demand.
0: Okay, nice. You gave me a nice segue there into my last question then I guess around gilt yields because you know you mentioned that, that bund yields have been leading the way lower and, and gilts have been following. Um, where next for UK rates do you think? Are they going higher or again or are they carrying or well, continuing to kind of trend downwards from here?
3: So we we are definitely on the bearish camp. Uh, we think that really the 1% target will be reached. The difficulty now is that more and more investors have embraced the view and also they are a bit hesitant because they look at the numbers and the UK data are actually fairly strong and yet there is no additional sell-off. So in our view what we need to have is a continuation of strong data which we think we will get and at the same time have higher supply. And by the way we have a central bank that is in tapering mode. So either you call it technical tapering or a mathematical tapering or whatever tapering, it is tapering. Uh, we, the BOE buys guilds at a slower pace and hence we've got some steepening of the curve. So we think that yields will go high. But again, this is really another 20 basis points uh, of, of, of a sell-off. It's not a 50 basis point. And the other point that I want to make is that I believe that the next 20 basis point sell-off will be more difficult than the previous 40 basis point sell-off. And the reason is really because is right now it is a view that is generally better understood the bearish view it has been embraced uh, and we need to get the data to confirm that view and supply so that yields go up it cannot just be affected by a shift in investor positioning
0: yeah it, it definitely does feel like that that bearish view has become more consensus globally i would say over well over the past few months all right bondcasters well thank you for joining me again um and we'll catch up again next week and just a reminder to everyone that if you did like today's episode please hit the like button to show your appreciation and subscribe so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available thanks
2: chat next week